Rona started out as a unifying moment across the globe. As Thomas Aquinas might say, everyone was seeking to preserve life and intend the good. And everyone was trusting that the other person was also seeking to preserve life and intend the good. And it didn't take long before people began to realize that the science wasn't clear, that the path to solving this global crisis wasn't clear. Different people believe that there's different best practices to implement to solve this global crisis. And so what was once a unifying moment became splintered at every turn as our worldviews began to collide with one another. And courses of action that in the beginning seemed common sense, language in the beginning that seemed to be common sense, all of a sudden became vilified in points of warfare within our society, pushing one another further and further apart. Hey, it's Lucas Scrobot, and you're listening to The Lucas Scrobot Show, where we uncover purpose, pursue truth, and own the future. Thanks for being with me on the show today, episode 221. And here we are in the year 2021. We've already lived through 2020 and a third of 2021. Why would we want to relive any of it in today's episode? Well, there's a few points that we are going to be hitting on today. One is the the conflict of worldview, the different belief structures that we have, the different way that we view that the world ought to fit together. And those differences has really driven us apart in so many ways through this global crisis. Another another point that we're going to hit on is the 24-hour news cycle and how social media has, has snowballed our division for the sake of clicks, for the sake of views, for the sake of political gain. And finally, we're going to be looking at some nuances, nuances not only in science and how that that has translated to what seems to be a lot of confusing and sometimes, in a lot of people's opinions, totalitarian laws that have played out across different societies, sometimes for the good of people and sometimes for political gain. As we said, COVID, the Rona, could have been quite a unifying moment for the globe. But when all of our eyes moved away from the crisis to begin to question, okay, well, what is the solution to this crisis? Our worlds and our worldview became very polarized as we each took steps to intend the good, as each side of the aisle began to take steps to preserve life. And we began to look at data, we began to look at science, and we began to look at studies and Different people had a different bias of saying, well, this is what's most important to do right now. This science is most important right now. Now, as these differences began to materialize, once again, media and politics and the grab for power filled the gaps which caused us to war against one another, which caused us to have so much friction and intention within society based on what we think is the best course of action. I mean, we, we've we've seen the social media posts where people are getting attacked for not wearing a mask or kicked off of airplanes for not wearing masks or, or pressured into not getting the vaccine or getting the vaccine. There's been an enormous amount of, of, of social shaming that has taken place for people who have gotten the vaccine by people who are refusing it and vice versa. It moved from being about science and technology to being about rhetoric, elections, and power. The science went from being a tool used to find a solution to a weapon used to silence, discredit, and censor the opponent's point of view. 
Now, science wasn't the only tool that was weaponized. In fact, race and racism was one of the first tools of rhetoric that was weaponized to not just divide political parties or not just divide uh, America for the sake of uh, election wins, but it was also being used to really divide and fraction the world. Here is MSNBC and CNN in the beginning of this crisis. This global pandemic, CNN was using the language, the Wuhan virus and the Chinese coronavirus many times. Here's a a series of clips from CNN and MSNBC saying just that. Concern is growing this morning over an outbreak of a new SARS-like virus in China. At least six people have died from the Wuhan coronavirus. The Wuhan coronavirus. The Wuhan coronavirus. The 34-year-old ophthalmologist diagnosed Saturday with the Wuhan coronavirus. The Wuhan virus. The Wuhan coronavirus. The Wuhan coronavirus. What more can you tell us about the similarities or differences between SARS and the Wuhan coronavirus? So clearly, this was something that was used by CNN Many times this was this was a common language that was used across the globe. And even today we hear things of the the South African strand. We hear things about the India variant. We hear things about the UK strand. So it's not uncommon to call a virus based on where it originated from. But of course, it didn't take long before the Trump campaign began to use the word Wuhan virus and began to use the word Chinese coronavirus. And CNN quickly changed their tune. Here is also a clip from CNN. This is all happening at a time that we're starting to see a message shift here because you're starting to hear the Republicans, especially Trump Co., calling it the Wuhan or the Chinese coronavirus. They're looking for someone to blame. Uh, It's going to come across to a lot of Americans as smacking of xenophobia uh, to use that kind of term. So here it is. All of a sudden, we go from using Wuhan virus, which is it's common sense. I mean, even today, we're using the Indian variant. Even today, we're using the South African strand. Even today, we're using UK. We're using geographical locations to denote where something came from. But it moved from being something that was commonplace to all of a sudden now it's xenophobia. Maybe you remember when former President Donald Trump closed down air travel to China. They said, well, that's xenophobic. It's so xenophobic that you would close down air travel from China to America. But now we see that President Biden has done the same thing. He's closed down air travel to India and from India. Why? Because there's an enormous amount of cases that are exploding throughout India right now. It's being ravaged by this strain, this variant of the Indian Wuhan coronavirus. But no longer is that xenophobic, but before it was xenophobic. So it's these inconsistencies within the media. Why? Well, it's for political gain. Now, the same thing happened with the jab, with the vaccines. Ironically, it was the Trump administration that pushed uh, $18 billion by the time October 2020 rolled around into Project Warp Speed. And they ramped up inoculations to nearly one million vaccines a day by the time they switched power over from on January 20th, 2021, from the Trump administration to the Harris-Biden administration. Yet the vaccine was all of a sudden turned into a political wedge. So, you know, you are probably familiar that many people who feel that they're young, that they're healthy, that they don't have comorbidities, they're opting out of getting the vaccine. They're saying, actually, I'm okay. I'm I'm relatively healthy. I'm going to take my chances. Well, they are now being labeled as alt-right, as extremists, as anti-vaxxers, as a a part of this pro-Trump crowd who doesn't want to get vaccines, even though it was the Trump administration that pushed the vaccines, even though it was the Trump administration that developed this, this warp speed program and was pushing out vaccines across America up to about a million a day by the time he left office. Even if a person like myself 
we get traditional vaccines. And right now we're like, well, we don't really need the vaccine. And I don't really think we have a health need to get one. I don't think we're going to move forward in getting a vaccine into the future, but I know many friends who do. But even people like me, we would be labeled as being alt-right, as being anti-vax, when really we're just saying, actually, I'm weighing the pros and the cons for myself personally as an individual. I'm saying, oh, this isn't something that I think that I need for the health, my health or the health of my family. The same thing can be said for the other side, that those people who are opting out of getting the jab are blaming other people of totalitarian measures. They're blaming other people of being sheep. They're, they're using th the same verbiage, the same arguments that they don't like being used against them, against others, and saying, well, you shouldn't get one. Instead of saying, well, each individual can make a, an assessment of their own risk and you can do what you want to do. You can take a vaccine if you want to, but I have the rights to my body. Another place that we've seen a, a vast disparity and, and violent conflict has been around the masks. Now, the, in the beginning, you'll probably remember that people were saying, the governments were saying, the WHO was saying, don't buy masks. We're going to run out of a global mask supply. Only use a mask if you're traveling on an airplane or in a crowded space for a long amount of time. But we want to save that for the doctors because we want to make sure that we have enough supply. Well, that changed. We fixed our supply and it changed to you must wear a mask all the time. Now there's places where if you go out in public and you don't wear a mask, you can face jail time. Now, masks have been such, I mean, such a divisive issue. Um, we've seen videos, you've seen videos, I'm sure, on the on the social media sphere of people getting physically and verbally abused for not wearing a mask. I'm sure there are videos out there as well of people getting physically and verbally abused for wearing a mask. Ironically, actually, I haven't seen any of those, of people getting abused physically for not or for wearing a mask, but I have seen videos of people getting attacked for wearing a mask, which is some, pretty ironic because I thought, the whole thing of someone not wearing a mask is that they're putting other people in danger, but you're supposed to be social distancing. So why would you full on attack the person? It makes no sense to me. But it's become such a divisive issue that if you don't wear a mask, now you are a grandma killer. But in despite of all the, the bickering and the conflict that's happening on the surface level, Despite everything that we're seeing in the media on both sides around this controversy of what seemed to be pretty vanilla in the beginning, whether it's wearing a mask or not wearing a mask, it wasn't something that was politicized, but now it's, well, you want to wear a mask to show that you are a kind and respectful person. That's what the narrative has become. You need to wear a mask to show where you stand politically. And if you don't wear a mask, you show where you stand politically. And even there are people who say, well, you want to not wear a mask to show where you stand on the political spectrum. But what does the science actually have to say? And the science is fairly conclusive and it's kind of nuanced because the science isn't directly conclusive. So it is conclusive, conclusive in that if you are wearing a mask, specifically if you're wearing an N95 mask, that you're going to greatly lower your risk of transmission, both receiving and sending. I believe a, a non-surgical, non-N95 mask is about a 70% reduction weight rate, which is great, but that is if they are worn properly. And so far of what I've seen, unless it's a person who is very, very, very sensitive and fear-driven or has a lot of underlying health issues that they're really trying to protect their health of whether it's themselves or someone else, I don't see anyone wearing the mask properly. This is what the Mayo Clinic says about how to wear a mask properly. One, wash or sanitize your hands before and after putting on your mask. Two, place your mask over your mouth, nose, and chin. 
Most people I see, they're pulling it down, messing with it. Do it all the time. Tie it behind your head. Use loop ears. Make sure it's snug. Okay, a lot of people are doing that. Don't touch your mask while wearing it. The moment that you touch your mask while wearing your mask, it's no longer effective. Next point, if you accidentally touch your mask, wash or sanitize your hands. If your mask becomes wet or dirty, switch to a clean one. Put the used mask in a sealed bag until you can get rid of it or wash it. I've never seen anyone walking around with an extra mask and putting their mask after they touch it or after it gets gets dirty into a sealed bag. Next point, remove the mask by untying it or lifting it of the ear loops without touching the front of your mask or face. Immediately wash your hands after removing your mask. Regularly wash your cloth mask in the washing machine or by hand. This is what the the recommendation is of how to wear a mask. That when you take it off, you shouldn't touch the front of it. You got to touch the back of it, dispose of it, and then wash your hands. I have never seen anyone do that. Maybe, maybe they're out there. Maybe I'm just not with them when they're changing their mask in the bathroom and carefully taking it off by the string. But I don't see people properly wearing their mask. And so if you're not properly wearing the mask, it's not actually properly working. You're actually touching the very part that infection could be on or that you could be infecting it by breathing out. And then you're going about and you're touching other, th- other things, which makes the mask now irrelevant. You're actually not helping. Now, the, the masks do help in stopping large water particles from traveling far distances when you cough or you sneeze or you're talking. So I see there is that benefit. But even the WHO, this is from the WHO website. The director general said, people can infect themselves if they use contaminated hands to adjust a mask or repeatedly take it on or off. I cannot say this clearly enough, said the general director. Masks alone will not protect you from COVID-19. So yes, they're helping stop massive water droplets from spreading, but we, we also see the WHO saying, if you're using your mask incorrectly, if you're using contaminated hands, you can actually infect yourself because you're touching your mask. So this is where the science all becomes muddy. And one side is emphasizing a specific point, which is saying, look, if you're not wearing your mask properly and no one is, then what good are they? They only act as a a false sense of safety and they're actually probably not helping anything. There's other studies that have also shown that by not wearing it properly, you actually increase your chance of infection because you're going to have a buildup of bacteria there on your mask. While that same side who's arguing to go maskless, they're ignoring some of the other data points, which says, actually, this does lower the spread of large water particles when someone coughs or sneezes or breathes. There's two sides. But it's turned into a war between worldviews. One side believes that we should be able to wear our mask or not wear a mask and take our own risk assessment based on our personal health. The other side believes that governments or organizations should create policy to determine what is best for everyone and enforce those rules or laws for the good of the whole. Both make sense, don't they? There's, there's elements of both that are going on in there. We do need to have expert organizations and governments making rules that we should live by to protect the whole while at the same time not infringing upon people's personal liberties. Now, we see that science has arguments for both sides of the worldview, for both sides of the aisle of whether we should skew to what an individual is assessing for their own personal rights or whether it skews to 
what the collective or the government or the state should be able to mandate on an individual. There's arguments for both sides. We've heard a lot of the arguments for why we should have lockdowns and why we should wear masks and why we should have uh, mandated vaccinations or mandated vaccination passports. Those are all seem pretty straightforward and clear and right in many ways because we can easily demonstrate that the loss of life that can happen when a pandemic gets out of control and that hospital beds are flooded, there's not enough capacity or there's a lack of oxygen and that the loss of life could be easily avoidable if we just took some precautions. Now, the other side, the individual side, the anti-lockdown side, the anti-mask side, they also have some points underneath their belt. There's an article written by John Tierney labeled Death and Lockdowns. He writes this, researchers predict that the social and economic upheaval would lead to tens of thousands of deaths of despair from drug overdoses, alcoholism, and suicide due to lockdowns. As unemployment surged and mental health and substance abuse treatment programs were interrupted, the reported levels of anxiety, depression, and suicidal thoughts increased dramatically, as did alcohol sales and fatal drug overdoses. The number of people killed last year in motor vehicle accidents in the United States rose to the highest level in more than a decade, even though Americans did significantly less driving than in 2019. It was the steepest annual increase in the fatality rate per mile traveled in nearly a century, apparently due to more substance abuse and more high-speed driving on empty roads. The number of excess deaths not involving COVID-19 has been especially high in U.S. counties with more low-income households and minority residents who were disproportionately affected by lockdowns. Nearly 40% of workers in low-income households lost their jobs during the spring, triple the rate in high-income households. Minority-owned small businesses suffered more too. During the spring, when it was estimated that 22% of all small businesses were closed, 32% of Hispanic owners and 41% of black owners shut down. Martin Kuldorf, a professor at Harvard Medical School, summarized the impact lockdowns have protected the laptop class of young, low-risk journalists, scientists, teachers, politicians, and lawyers while throwing children in the working class and higher risk older people under the bus. The deadly impact of lockdown will grow in future years due to the lasting economic and educational consequences. The United States will experience more than 1 million excess deaths during the next two decades as a result of the massive unemployment shock that happened last year, according to a team of researchers from John Hopkins and Duke who analyzed the effects of past recessions on mortality. Other researchers, noting how educational levels affect income and life expectancy, has projected that the loss of learning from school closures will ultimately cost this generation and students more years of life than have been lost by all the victims of the coronavirus. This is an issue. It's an issue when one of our biggest strategies have been to lock down, to shut down schools, to shut down small businesses, to cause people to, to force them to isolate in their home. You can't go out. It's causing an increase of anxiety and depression and drug use and suicide, a loss of education for future generations, which will lead to earlier death, a, a loss of life, a, a million excessive deaths in the United States alone in the next two decades, what will that be on a global scale just from the economic shock of unemployment? So there's data and there's science on both sides of the aisle. I was sent this week an article by Dwayne Blackburn from Anna. She sent this over to me. Thanks, Anna. If you're listening, appreciate the tip. 
He writes an article, When and How Should We Trust the Science? The COVID-19 pandemic, paradigm-shifting technological advances, and unfortunately, politics have birthed a bright spotlight on the role of science within public policy. Science and technology, facts, are alternately used to argue multiple sides of debates, cherry-picking or taken out of context to prove an individual's desired outcome, or dismissed as being irrelevant if they don't support a political objective. He goes on saying that public confidence in the science community is higher than in many other institutions and has been fairly consistent for decades. But events of 2020 seem to have fractured that confidence as partisan divides and personal biases increased in prominence. Because of this increase, combined with the ubiquitous use of social media for millions to share their opinions, public discussion of science and technology policies is an issue that is rapidly growing and evolving into self-reinforcing and imposing camps. Let's be perfectly clear, he writes, science is not automatically infallible. The very nature of science is a series of hits and misses, then arguing about these hits and misses until the learned community coalesces around a solidly proven idea. Sometimes, though not very often, that proven consensus ends up being disproven decades later. The notable example is that for centuries, the world's greatest scientific minds were convinced that the sun revolved around the earth. The point to remember is that scientists always analyze and reanalyze what we think to be true. Science is never completely settled. This is the whole point of the scientific method. We come up with a question. We develop a hypothesis. This is what I think will happen. And then we test it. And normally we fail and we test again and we fail and we test again and we fail and we come up with new hypotheses until we find an answer. And then we put that out to the scientific community and other people then peer review, other scientists, other doctors, peer review an article, a paper. And once it's gone through a peer review, which is someone either trying to re redo the experiment to come up with the same result, to do it in another way, to see what maybe if there's any personal biases in there. The core argument that I gathered from Dwayne's article was that there's seven tiers of trust, zero being what your Aunt Peggy posts on social media, and number seven being what government institutions or, or scientific communities and bodies would essentially put their stamp of approval on to say is true. And between zero and six, excuse me, is a, a, a varying ladder of zero being, you know, no trustworthiness to, to varying degrees of trustworthiness when you go up the scale. Now, what's happening with social media is that we can just create a post. We can take uh, and cherry pick data points from all over the place and compile it to make our own opinion, to make what we think as non-experts is what and what fits our personal biases and our personal opinion. Now, this is one thing that we've talked about with de Tocqueville, Alexis de Tocqueville, where he wrote about the, the trap of hyper-individuality, where we all think in egalitarianism, where we all think, well, since we're all equal and we all have an equal opinion, then why should we listen to science? Why should we listen to the doctors? I'm a doctor too. I'm a doctor too. And if we're all doctors too, if we all can just give our opinion and say it has equal weight as someone else, well, then we're going to fall into these traps. Now, journalists, he writes in this article, like to focus on what is new or what contradicts existing thinking. So, they naturally tend to focus on some sources that are on the lower tiers of trust. Now, when I read this, my initial thought was like, hmm, I wonder if that's me. But I can tell you for a fact that I spent about 10 hours in reading and research and looking at sources and facts, peer-reviewed articles before putting together an episode. 
even an episode like this. I looked at probably 10 hours of reading and research and facts to put together something that I think is reasonably unbiased. Now, of course, I clearly have a a worldview bias. I clearly have a political bias. And I don't hide that. I don't hide that bias. But I do try to have a balanced view and have a balanced argument in my bias. I'm definitely always trying to bring in the other side. Even when we're looking at this, the tension between whether it's individual liberty or should the state be controlling your life? Well, I think there, there's a blend and a mix there. I think there is clearly a lot of data that shows that we need to take precautions. There's clearly a lot of data that shows an even moral philosophy, which we're about to get into, that shows that governments have a role in making laws to protect and, and serve society while not infringing on the individual, but the individual as well, cannot just say, well, I have my own individual liberties if those liberties are actually hurting other people. He goes on, Dwayne goes on in his article, he says, social media algorithms are even more focused on generating mouse clicks. And they know the best way to do it is by feeding us stories that are similar to others that we've previously interacted with. So we ended up with a stream of increasingly inaccurate messages rather than the variety of nuanced explanations that we require. And we end up with a stream, maybe not even of inaccurate messages, but it's definitely an echo chamber. We're only hearing one side of the argument in our social media feeds. We're only seeing one side of the argument in our social media feeds just based on what we interact with, just based on what we like, just based on who we follow. Even if we're following the other voices, if we're not liking those photos or commenting or engaging with that content as much, it will begin to feed us one side of the argument. And we find ourselves in echo chambers. But here's the the main point that I found really jump out at me in this article. And this was the issue of context. Dwayne writes, context is also important in scientific discussions. Recall from earlier that science and technology truths are often quite complicated and nuanced. What is true for one situation may be completely inaccurate for a second situation, even if the two are very similar. This occurs often in operational contexts where even a slight adjustment in operational parameters can produce widely different outcomes or issues. When I read this, it, it clearly articulated and encapsulated what I've been I've been trying to communicate for at least some time now, especially when, when it comes to the whole COVID crisis. Where, where we live here in the Middle East, we're currently in a, in a pretty tight lockdown. You can't leave your house from 7 p.m. to 4 a.m. Uh, all commercial stores are closed, minus restaurants and food businesses and gas stations. So there's no shopping during the day that can be done except for groceries, and you can't leave your house after 7 p.m. to 4 a.m. It's a pretty strict lockdown. But I, I look at the decisions that the government here is making, and I'm saying, okay, well, they have a nation that I believe is 60% obese. They have a nation which has probably 60 or 70% uh, diabetes. Both are leading comorbidities in COVID. They have a health system that is not extremely robust. They don't have a, a huge number of hospitals for emergency rooms. And everyone here, they live in multi-generational houses where they have 20 people living in a house where great grandma to, the, to the, the young grandkids are all living together in one place. So because of this, this set of unique dynamics here, I understand and I have a lot of empathy for the decisions that this country is making to protect their people. And I abide by those rules and I don't complain about those rules because one, I'm not a citizen of this country. And two, I can understand 
based on their set of data, based on the nuances that they are living in, why they're taking the decisions that they need to take. I understand why they close air travel to India because they can't be having a, a new variant of coronavirus coming in and decimating their population that has already seen extremely high death rates. So that makes sense to me. But it also makes sense when you look at some of these other nations where the health system's different, where the laws are different, where society is structured different, of why there would be clear and concise arguments and clear science and clear data to back up the completely opposite approach, to back up the opposite approach of saying, actually, you don't have to wear a mask when you go out in public, and actually, stores can be open. I see, I see how both can be true at the same time. Both can be true at the same time. But the trap in it all is when we fall into this totalitarian thinking where we think that both can't be true at the same time. We have to have one or the other. Where we, where we look at a, a, a nation, maybe a very large nation, and we make blanket laws that don't really apply to some and seem very totalitarian. Or the opposite, where we, where, where we exclude some people from laws, which seems very biased in nature. In nature. For instance, when small mom-and-pop stores must be shut down, but large grocery stores can remain open. These were some of the, the laws that were taking place that just made no sense at one point in America. Thomas Aquinas, he, he writes about four kinds of laws, and this is taken from Dr. Jan Garrett from the Western Kentucky University. The four kinds of laws that Aquinas writes about recognizes that there are four main kinds of laws. The first is eternal, second is the natural, third, human, and fourth, the divine. All three depend on the first, which is the eternal, but in different ways. If we were to arrange them in a hierarchy, eternal, eternal law would be at the top, then natural, then human. Divine law is not in conflict with natural law, but it reaches human beings by a different route, according to Aquinas, which is revelation. And divine law would then sit right there at the bottom. So, and this is going somewhere. Because I, I want to break down these four different laws. And I know this is very philosophical in nature, but I think it will help us understand some of these nuances. I think it will help us understand when we're talking about worldview, where we're building our framework from. What are we talking about when, when we're discussing how we view the world, how we approach the world? Understanding Aquinas's four laws, even though they're very philosophical and seem to be very far out there, we're going to break them down into something that's simple and applicable because if we can understand these four laws, we can begin to see what's happening in society, what's happening within legislation, which is happening within people's debates and arguments. We can begin to see and articulate what we believe in our worldview with much more clarity. And we can begin to understand why other people are thinking the way that they're thinking, why they're approaching some subjects the way that they do, and then we can have a, a mutually beneficial conversation where we can move past the surface levels of, of bickering and arguing, and we can get to some higher levels of abstraction so that we can come to helpful conclusions on both sides where we, where we don't think that each other is the devil incarnate. So, the first law is the internal law that we're going to touch on. Again, very briefly, Aquinas describes the first law as the eternal law, which is identical to the mind of God as seen by God himself. Now, we have to remember Aquinas was a Catholic philosopher who walked in the footsteps of Aristotle. Plato and Aristotle are two very famous philosophers. Plato was very kind of pie in the sky, very um, mystical, very ethereal in his thinking. But Aristotle was very down 
to earth in practical, practical application in his philosophy. And, and Aquinas followed more after the footsteps of Aristotle and being very practical in his thinking. Aquinas goes on, it can be called God's law because God stands to the universe which he creates as a ruler does to a community which he rules. When God's reason is considered as it is understood by God himself, i.e. it is unchanging and eternal in nature, it is the eternal law. The second law of the four is the divine law. The divine law is derived from the eternal law as it appears historically to humans, especially through revelation. This is what the monotheistic faiths believe, that the word of God, that the law of God is divine and was revealed through supernatural revelation to men. So this is what would be considered in two ways. Aquinas qualifies this in two ways. One, the old law, which commands the conduct of external actions, and it reaches humans through their capacity for fear. The law promises earthly rewards, social peace, and its benefits. So the old law would be muchly considered the Ten Commandments, the don't murder, the don't steal, respect your parents, respect authority, don't covet, things like this. This would be considered in the old law, and it's driven by fear. It's a fear-based driving of saying, if you do, if you break these laws, there will be these consequences. So the underneath the divine law, they're driven by fear in the old law, under the divine law, driven by fear. The second is the new law, which the new law, which would be the teachings of Jesus from the New Testament, the Sermon on the Mount, where, where the new law commands internal conduct, and it reaches humans by example of divine love, and it promises heavenly rewards. So within the new law, it would be turn the other cheek, love your neighbor and pray for your enemy, don't even lust or think about a woman in your mind, whereas in the old law, it was don't commit adultery. In the new law, it's don't even commit adultery with a woman in your mind. So it's the internal law is the new law, and that is driven by love. It's not driven by fear, because if we break those internal laws, we're not actually going to suffer some sort of consequence from a government because they're very internal, but we'll suffer internally and, and we'll miss out on heavenly rewards. Next comes the human law. Under the human law, we can say that Thomas thinks of human laws as laws devised by human reason, adapted to particular geographical and historical and social circumstances. This is exactly what we were talking about just a few minutes ago with a response of one nation, for instance, here in the Middle East, or a nation with a very different social makeup. There's particular geographical or historical circumstances that would define, based on human reason, what a good law would be. Aquinas talks about underneath the human law that law is directed to the common good and human law is no exception. The promotion of virtue is necessary for the common good, and human laws are instruments in the promotion of virtue. Aristotle already pointed out that most people are kept from crime by fear, as we also saw underneath the divine law of the old law. Thomas accepts this judgment, suggesting that by coercion, even men who are evilly disposed may lead and be led in the direction of virtue. Laws are also important, says Thomas, for other reasons noted by Aristotle. One, it is easier to find a few wise persons who can make good laws than to find many who, in the absence of laws, can judge correctly in each instance. Now, this is where a big point of today's argument comes in. And that is a point against hyper-individualism. It is a point saying there are actually reasons that we have 
governments and health organizations in place to make laws. Because it is easier to find a few wise people who are spending their days researching, studying, scientists to make a few good laws than in the absence of any laws where we have total anarchy, where each person is, is a god underneath unto themselves, where anyone can do anything they want. In such a society where there's complete freedom, where there's complete anarchy, where there's no laws, you're not likely to find a large group of people who can judge in each instance correctly. Now, this goes on both sides of the spectrum. Right now, we're seeing on both sides of the spectrum, especially in America, on the right and on the left, both sides are are skewing in some ways to having more control, and both sides are skewing in some ways of saying, we want to throw off all the fetters and we want to do what we want. And that's the argument that's being made by those that are saying, we don't want to wear a mask. We don't want to have our school shut down. We want to go about and we want to make our own judgments for ourselves. In the same way, that argument's being made on different circumstances along different arguments on the other side of the aisle on the left saying, we don't want to have a police force. We don't want to have any laws. We want to be able to do what we want. We should be able to decide our, our rules as our own community, and we should do away with federal laws. We should do away with the judicial system. Now, not everyone on that side, but the, a, a very progressive left in America is producing and pushing such a narrative. This is the same narrative that was pushed by, by Marxists and socialists and communists saying we need to do away, we need to set up a whole new system because the system's enslaving people and people should be free to do whatever they want. But it doesn't work that way. Aquinas goes on and says, even though laws are general, they are still adapted to the nature of the community, which is not everywhere the same. And to the classes of individuals who make up that society. For instance, there could be one set of laws that governed the conduct of trade and another set of laws that governed the control of parents over their children. In other words, there may be different laws for different kinds of citizens who have different functions in the community. The human law, says Thomas, is not obliged to repress all vices. It is framed for most people who are far from perfect in virtue. It is aimed at the more grievous vices for which the majority can abstain. Those who'd be hurtful of others like murder, theft, etc. Were the law to attempt to legislate perfection, it would make people hostile to the law and defeat its purpose. And this is the other side of the same coin. And this is the total opposite side of the coin than the argument that was just made a few moments ago, which is if the government steps in and were to say, sorry, you can't drink sugar anymore because it's bad for you. You can't have caffeine anymore because it could be a potentially addictive substance. Sorry, you can only watch a certain amount of hours of Netflix because it's now time for you to go to bed. If the government stepped in to try to control Every single vice would make people hostile to the law and therefore defeat its purpose. But if the government totally pulls out of society to let everyone just decide what is best for them, then you have chaos. And so here we are stuck in the tension between the two in these situations on a global level where each nation is having to decide what is best for the makeup of their nation while at the same time, they're trying to judge between how much loss of life are we willing to protect and defend now versus how much loss of life are we going to see in the future. The last law is the natural law. The first principle of the natural law is that good is to be done and pursued and evil is to be avoided. All other precepts of natural law rest upon this law. Now, natural law versus the human law is 
kind of tricky. Natural law is less specific than human laws, but human laws are the applications that are drawn from the natural law and cannot deviate what we might call the spirit of the natural law. So the natural law is more of a moral content and the human law is more general and specific content. Natural laws hold in general that human life should be preserved and steps should be taken to preserve it. But laws governing automobile traffic, so as, among other things, to preserve human life and health, are specific to an era in which automobiles exist, and therefore those would be human laws. A further specification codified in human law is one of, for instance, in the U.S., you drive on the right side of the road, and in Great Britain, you drive on the left side of the road. So human law is partly a matter of pure custom. So human law is a matter of pure custom and human law differs from one law in one place to another, but they are all hanging on the same natural law that applies to all of humanity and morality. When we are talking about laws, if when we are talking about, well, what should happen? Well, what should a government do? These are some of the things in the framework that we need to be thinking through. We need to be thinking through the framework of that there are some laws that are set in place to keep us from vice that hurts other people, and that it's fear that drives us away from committing these vices, from breaking these laws, such as murder, fear of these consequences. Then there other laws that really can't be legislated. They're kind of laws of the heart. They're laws of don't be envious. They're laws of don't be jealous. We A government can't enforce a law and say, well, sorry, you were jealous today. Those are, are things that will be judged on in eternity, and we will suffer for them in this age to come if we break them. But if we uphold them, we'll reap rewards both in this life and the life to come, of course. But those would be the divine laws. From there, we have, as Aquinas talks about, the natural law. That natural law expands and crosses all of humanity, irregardless of where they are in time and space and geographical location. Aquinas writes, whatever is the means of preserving human life and of warding off its obstacles belong to human law. In other words, a good justification for a moral or legal rule is that it promotes the preservation of human life. Behind this is the fact that all living beings possess an inclination for survival. So that is, the, within our nature, we have a desire to survive. And so from that would come the natural law of wanting to preserve human life. That natural law covers all of humanity. From that, we then have to determine what our human laws are of how to best carry out that natural law, how to best carry out warding off obstacles and preserving human life. And this is where the crux of the matter comes in. Right now, we're saying, how much life are we willing to risk right now? How much anxiety and depression are we willing to incur upon people, which will result in loss of life further down the road? And how much responsibility do we have right now to preserve human life? I do not think that the decisions that a nation anywhere in the world is making right now in this time is being taken lightly or flippantly. And when we go back to this article, by Dwayne Blackburn, and we ask, well, when should we trust the science? And what science should we trust? We see that it is not simple. That is actually quite complex. It is actually quite nuanced. And we would be amiss to say that one side or the other side is the correct course of action for all societies across the globe, because that's just absolutely not true. There's so much diversity in an ecosystem and societal makeup and health risks that each nation is making for themselves. And with that, 
I think it builds in a level of grace that we need to have for one another to realize that different people are weighing different fears, different hopes, different dreams, different goals. And that within that, those human laws have some level of malleability based on culture, based on custom. But what doesn't have malleability, and this is where people get mixed up, because people say, well, all cultures are equal. Well, you can't, don't judge what someone else is doing because that might just be cultural. But when we look at specific laws or specific cultures that are breaking what would be considered natural law or breaking what would be considered divine law, where they have ideas that are set up that are directly opposed to the preserving of human life, for instance, abortion, directly opposed to the preserving of human life, we can easily say, no, that's not just a cultural thing. That's not just something that is malleable in the the area of human law, but that is something that breaks the natural law and breaks the divine law. And therefore, we can, we can easily look through a lens of a worldview to say, this isn't a gray area. This is actually quite black and right, white. And we can also, at the same time, take that same framework and look at something like what we're seeing right now with this pandemic across the globe. And we can say, okay, well, all these nations are actually trying to preserve human life. And they're looking at the data that they're given and they're doing their best to come away with the best possible immediate and future outcome for their group, for the people that they're seeking to serve. So what's the the whole take home of this? We started this episode talking about how COVID has fractured society even more. And I don't think that should be surprising for many because when we realize that we come from very different perspectives and worldviews of how to solve problems, whether it's resting more on an individual or resting more on the state, on the collective, those are exacerbated. These differences are magnified as we're trying to solve a much bigger problem in society. And so I think that is to be expected. I think that is a natural occurrence. But I think what was added to it all was the news media cycle, the selling and the the fear-mongering that was created within the media to drive ratings, to drive prices, to drive clicks. And that has driven society needlessly apart along areas and, and data and science that could be easily tested and tried and weighed and to see the nuance within that science, just as we need to see nuance within human laws between different geographical locations and cultures, not just within a nation, but within different areas of a nation, within different neighborhoods and cities in a nation, realizing that we're not all just one monolith. We're not all suffering and and battling this uh, pandemic in the same degree or the same manner. And I think that has been one of my guiding focuses in this time in realizing that different nations have a different set of problems that they're dealing with. And so we need to be able to see that nuance and we need to be able to respond rightly to those nuances to preserve human life and not politicize it one way or another. And, And the final driver that is putting a wedge between all of us across the globe is the political spirit that is weaponizing data and science and the quote-unquote facts and quote-unquote common sense for their own political advantage and their own political gain. And that goes for all sides of the spectrums, all sides of the political aisles. It's not just one side that's doing it or the other side. Both sides are doing it in their own ways. So what is the solution? Well, one would be for you and I to avoid controversy. I know we talk about a lot of controversial topics here on the show, but we're not doing it to stir up controversy. We're not doing it to stir up conflict. We're doing it to ask questions so that we can better understand how to view the world, a healthy framework 
to put the world together, which is why we spent the time that we did looking through Aquinas's four laws. We do it so that we can know how to walk through controversial topics and subjects that really do have, uh, they're not inconsequential to our life, but they actually have real impact and consequences in our everyday life and in the lives of our children and grandchildren for many years from now. So I do hope that it served you in that way today. And if you get value out of this show, out of this podcast, I ask that you would give the value that you feel like you got out of it back to the show. And you can do that by going over to our website at lucasrobot, that's L-U-C-A-S-S-K robot.com and cl- click the support button. And there you can give value back to the very degree that you feel like you got it out of this show. Another way that you can get more value out of the show is by talking about it with a colleague or your friends, family, because when we discuss things, when we process information out loud with other people and grapple with thoughts and ideas, that will cause us to learn and cause our learning to go quantum. So if you want to have exponential learning from this, talk about this with a friend, bring your community in on this. Now, don't go away. We have a closing Weaver and Loom segment with a quote from The Art of War. Welcome back to Weaver and Loom, a part of the show where we take ancient wisdom and we weave it in with our everyday lives so that we can own our future and weave our destiny. Today's quote is from The Art of War by Sun Tzu. He writes, We cannot enter into alliances until we are acquainted with the designs of our neighbors. We cannot enter into alliances until we are acquainted with the designs of our neighbors. When I read this quote, it reminded me that we cannot just accept ideas before we know their designs. Ideas have designs. Ideas have consequences in our life. A lot of times, and I was just in a conversation with someone about this today, we, we accept these ideas. And we're accepting the idea because of maybe the, the person that it comes from. We accept the idea because of the, the, the group that adheres to that idea. But we don't actually stop to weigh and measure that idea. We don't actually look and say, well, what's the history of this idea? What's the fruit of this idea? If I apply this idea to my life, what is going to happen to my life? Okay, well, maybe I should look at the fruit of people who are accepting this, who believe this. Maybe I should look at the the quality of societies that have adopted this at, at large scale. And this is this is what we talk about. I mean, ad nauseum on this show, we talk about whether or not ideas are going to have positive impacts on our life. We talk about the worldviews that we're adopting or we're choosing to reject. And this is what Sun Tzu was saying, was don't build alliances with your neighbors. Don't build alliances with ideas. Don't accept any new and novel idea that comes your way just because it's there just because it's your neighbor, just because someone that you know thinks that way. But we must be the ones who take those ideas, who measure them, and we weigh them, and we test them, and we see what will this consequence have. We put it up against the, the, the natural law, the divine law, the eternal law, and human laws. And we say, well, if we apply this to our personal lives, what will happen? What will my life end up looking like? And this is what we have focused so much on and it seems, I mean, the conversations that I have with people are continuing to revolve around this, to continue to, to revolve around what ideas are we adopting as our own? And so we even made a sticker about it. Watch your thoughts because your thoughts become your emotions, your emotions become your actions, your actions 
become your behaviors, which becomes your habits, which becomes your environment, which becomes your destiny, which becomes your future. We need to watch our thoughts because right now at a large across society, a generation is adapting uh, postmodern, post-structuralist ideologies which lead to nihilism, which lead to hopelessness, which lead to, to life explicitly where there is no meaning, there is no truth, there is no knowing. You can't even know your own reality in postmodernism because it's all subjective. We need to know what those consequences will be for our life if we begin down that path. And luckily, we have a lot of history books that can show us. We have a lot of uh, examples of people still alive in history that we can look at their life and say, is that where I want to end up? That is all for today's episode. Thank you so much for being with me on the show today. And stay tuned for episode 222, which is coming out shortly. I'm super excited for what we have lined up for you. And between now and then, go out, uncover your purpose, pursue the truth, and own the future.